Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. The word of God speaks to us like this. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Yes. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good. It's, uh, it's great to be back home. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Curry. I was out last week. Uh, thanks for your prayers. Our bikepacking trip was amazing. It was epic. We spent seven days riding mountain bikes through single track and through some incredible logging roads in the mountains of Colorado all the way to Moab, Utah. It was a blast. It was epic. Uh, We had a great group of guys that were together. We got to share really deeply. We had daily prayer and daily liturgy together, and it was so beautiful. And the climbing was epic. If you're like, if if your idea of a fun vacation is 24,000 feet of climbing with a loaded bicycle, you should totally do it. So, so fun. It's like the best hobby ever. Heavy bicycles in the mountains. Um, So, it's good to be home. And I heard last week was awesome and that Kenny did a great job. Pastor Kenny's preaching in our Shawnee congregation today. So, I'm going to pray for you guys and ask you to pray for me. And if you've got a Bible, you can find Mark chapter 4. We're walking through this amazing gospel. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for the heart of this gospel to reveal Jesus, to invite people that don't yet know Jesus to see his beauty and his kindness, his power, his love, his authority, his willingness to take our place, the horror of his death and the victory of his resurrection. I pray today, in particular for my friends that are not Christians, I'm I'm so thankful they're here. It was really brave for them to show up. I pray that you would bless them and that you would give them a sense of your presence and your peace. And I pray today that you would form us and that you would shape us in your word. And just as that last verse said that 
you, Jesus, explained everything to your disciples. When it comes to parables, we need you to do that for us through the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what these mean and reshape the way that we navigate this world. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. Hey, so yesterday I committed a great indecency and I have to tell you about it. Um, to prepare for the vanquishing of the forces of evil in the defeat of Conor McGregor. And if you're a McGregor fan, we need to get some time together and do a pastoral intervention. We need to talk to you about good versus evil. That'll come later. Um, to prepare for the fights, I got to go to my favorite place in OKC for chicken wings, which is Pizzeria Gusto. And the wings yesterday were particularly good. Like, sometimes Gusto doesn't make them crispy enough, but the wings were crispy and glorious. Amazing. The great indecency that I committed, though, is that philosophically, I find it a violation of all that's good, natural, and right to leave me on chicken wings, right? Like, amen? Like, this is, this is something that I've tried to instill in my son Elijah. We had a deep conversation. I would say early on I had to discipline him because he left so much meat on his chicken wings. Like, if you haven't consumed a little bit of the bone even on your chicken wings, you're doing it wrong. You gotta get in there. It's a full contact sport. You gotta be greasy. You need a little bit of sauce on your shirt or you're not even trying, like you didn't even show up. And the problem was between my chicken wings and getting to watch Conor McGregor get destroyed, um, Nance and I had an appointment and I was concerned about showing up with chicken wing juice all over my shirt and I went gently into my chicken wings. I left like 20% of the meat on them. I apologize, Elijah, for my hypocrisy. And as I left the meat on the chicken wings, when we were walking out of the restaurant together, I kind of chuckled because the chicken wings remind me of trying to approach the parables of Jesus. Like the parables of Jesus, the parables of Jesus require, if you're going to get out of them what Jesus wants you to get out of them, that you get messy with them that you roll up your sleeves with them, that you engage in the process, not in a delicate way, but with your heart, with your imagination, with all of your being. And what happens in the parables of Jesus is that Jesus is doing something in a really profound and kind of sneaky way that's helpful for us. He's not just giving us direct information so that we can learn intellectually. Jesus is approaching ultimate reality and inviting us to encounter reality in a kind of way that helped his hearers then and his hearers now question the fantasy that we're living in. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard talked about indirect information through poetry and through parable. One poet described poetry as an imaginary garden with real toads and that's actually a good description of parables also. Parables are these stories that Jesus made up to get to truth that's not made up. To get to ultimate reality and to invite us to question some assumptions that are built on either man-centered religion like a lot of his hearers, or moralism like a lot of us think the gospel is, or ways in which we're trying to build castles out of sand that are not going to survive the test of time and the pain of life and eventually staring down the barrel 
of our last day. And so in the parables of Jesus, Jesus kindly offers a grace and a judgment. A grace and a judgment. And what I mean by that is I've heard dear friends that I really love sort of describe the parables of Jesus as just sermon illustrations. Like Jesus is just being super folksy and he's trying to preach in a way that people get it. And the parables are illustrations that he throws at the end. But the problem with that is that Jesus says in other places that he spoke in parables so some people wouldn't understand. So what's happening in these parables? How are they a grace and a judgment? Let me read from one commentator, a guy named William Lane. He writes this, Jesus' adoption of the indirect address was accordingly an expression both of grace and judgment. It was an expression of grace which allowed time for reflection, to eat the meat, to wrestle, to imagine. And, and he goes on to say that his, that his appeal would penetrate his words, beneath his words, to the word. It was an expression of judgment upon their lack of preparation to receive directly the word of the kingdom of God. It's both grace and judgment. It's a grace. It's an invitation to wrestle with these stories and these pictures and these metaphors that actually can penetrate so deeply into your heart that they get to the places that just direct information acquisition can't get to. And yet the judgment of the parables is that the people then and the people now have built walls of resistance against the ultimate reality of who God is and God's truth. And it goes over our head. Jesus took these teachings so seriously. L listen to the way he calls his hearers to engage these parables in chapter 4. Verse 3, Jesus says, listen, listen. In verse 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. In verse 20, he says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Again, in verse 23, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And in verse 24, he says, pay attention. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. And verse 33 says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Jesus so badly wants to serve us into an encounter with ultimate reality that shapes the way you navigate this world and that can actually give you a sense of the very presence of God in his word so that your life can have roots that go deep so that you don't have to have a life built on the sand of all the transient things we think are ultimate and most important that are going to crumble and fall apart and end up in landfills. The parables of Jesus bring us into an encounter with how the world really is and the God that made the world and the God that delights in redeeming the world and inviting us into his work of redemption. So I want to give you a few things that Jesus shows us. We're going to go through three parables. The parable of the lamp, the parable of the seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. Number one, Jesus points out that he is the light. Look at verse 21. He said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Now, 
let me point something out. Um, you can really trust your modern English translations of the Bible. They're trustworthy. We have ancient documents, and the translators have done phenomenal jobs in comparing the manuscripts and making sure that they are faithful to the original languages that the Bible was written in. But every now and then, translators sort of build a momentum, and they might miss a few things. This verse is one such example. The Greek uses the definitive article, not is a lamp, but the Greek says, does the lamp, does the lamp come in order to be put under a basket or under a bed? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's, through this parable, not describing a kind of revelation that's external to himself, a kind of truth that just is disembodied out there that we've got to sort of ascribe to or meditate our way into. What he's saying is he himself is the lamp through which the light of God has entered the world. Jesus is the light. He himself is ultimate meaning, ultimate reality. He is the embodiment of beauty. And without Jesus, there's things that we can learn about the world through science. There's things that we can learn about the world through math. There's things that we can learn about the world through observation. Those things are good. They're common grace gifts that God's given us. But listen, without Jesus, the ultimate light of who God is is lost on us. The reason for which we exist is lost on us. And in the midst of this dark world, what we keep doing as human beings is we try to navigate our way through a treacherous cave with paper matches that keep going out that just cause shadows to get thrown everywhere around us. And what Jesus does through his coming, through his incarnation, through his teaching, through his life, through his example, but most importantly, through his action of redemption on the cross and through his victory over the grave and his resurrection, what Jesus does is shine the light of God. There's things that we can know about ourselves through psychology, through studying our history, but what we can't know about ourselves without Jesus is just how broken we are and just how loved we are by our creator. That you have a creator who actually longs to not just be your creator, but through the work of Jesus, to be your adopted father. To enfold you into his family, to embrace you, to hold you to his chest. That light is lost on us without the coming of Jesus. So Jesus is not a light. He's not a truth. He's the lamp. The lamp that steps into the world that we might see. John chapter 1 verse 9 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is the lamp that shines the very light of God. Secondly, the light illuminates and reveals. It illuminates and reveals. Look at verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Um, let me point out that this verse is both attractive and it's repulsive to us. The light that Jesus brings, the light that Jesus is, 
reveals and illuminates. And some of the things that it reveals and illuminates are profoundly inviting. Even if you don't believe Jesus and you don't love and follow Jesus, there's things that Jesus shines his light on that I think you want to believe. That behind the world, there's not meaningless chaos or cold mathematical precision. That behind the world, if you are able to pull back the veil and see beyond this creation, it's not just an expanding universe that doesn't mean anything. You wouldn't be peering into a dark void. You'd be looking into the eyes of love. That the God who created us did not leave us and abandon us in our sin and in our self-destruction, but he actually from the very beginning has been working to intervene, to pursue, to forgive, to heal, to rescue. That though creation is groaning and broken, everywhere you look, when you see trees standing upright and mountains rising out of valleys, when you look at the ocean, what you see are signposts that are pointing you to the glory of God who loves you and who wants you to taste of his goodness. In the light of Jesus, we get to see what people are for, who we are, and what the invitation of God is to have a future and a hope to not live under the despairing tyranny of death that all of your accomplishments and all of your loves just get wiped out and it doesn't really matter because you end up being worm food anyways. In the light of Jesus, you see that everything matters, that life matters, and the eternity that's imprinted on your heart, the longing to go on, the desire for love to last, that's inside of you because God implanted it there to create in you longing that you might, in the light of Jesus, see what you're for. In the light of Jesus, we figure out what marriage is and what it isn't. We get to see what singleness is and what it isn't. And my hope is, in the light of Jesus, those things would be really attractive to you, that you would long for them to be true, even if you don't yet believe them. But let's be honest. In the light of Jesus, we also see the creepy crawlies. In the light of Jesus, we see how profoundly bent we are. I wouldn't know apart from the light of Jesus, just how profound my propensity to be selfish is. That even parts of my life that you would look at and find admirable, like there's ways in which I love my wife and beneath some of those motives is not a desire to just love and serve her, but it's connected also to my selfishness. In the light of Jesus, I start to see my cruelty, anger, lust, greed. In the light of Jesus, I start to realize that what I do again and again is I want God's stuff without God. I want his creation without being bothered to thank him for it or to enjoy him in it. In the light of Jesus, we see just how messed up we are. Have you ever thought about the Ten Commandments as not ultimate humanity, not like a great list of rules if you really want to evolve to the higher form of what people could be. Have you ever thought of the Ten Commandments instead as like an incredibly low bar? Like, don't kill each other. Don't kill each other. That's not give away all your possessions to the poor. That's just like, hey man, if you don't kill each other and don't steal from each other and don't take one another's spouses, your neighborhood will maybe be okay. 
And with the low bar of the Ten Commandments in the light of Jesus, what we find is we break all of them. (laughs) And even the ones we think we don't break, we break the heart of it. In the light of Jesus, man, we see just how profoundly our need for a Savior is. How deep it is, how messed up we are, how broken we are. And when the light comes in, sometimes we feel drawn to the invitation of the light, and sometimes we want to retreat. We want to flip the breaker back because we prefer the darkness. John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. I, I had a friend who went through a really nasty divorce and ended up in a really bad apartment complex in Huntington Beach, California. I went to go visit him to try to encourage him and spend some time together. And I, I got up one night to go to the bathroom, and I walked into the bathroom and flipped on the lights. And I was like, why is the, why is the floor of the bathroom all moving? And I looked down, it was the most, I mean, I've lived in houses with roaches, but this was like a carpet of roaches. It, it was like a roach rave. There was a roach DJ. <laughs> there, there were roaches with glow sticks. Like, it was turnt for the roaches in that bathroom. And when you see something like that, when you turn the light on and you see that literally, like, the corruption and the filth and the infestation that's there, the first reaction is just to turn off the light and leave. Listen, in the light of Jesus, we see the infestations that are happening in here. But the thing about the light is that he shines the light not to shame you or to ask you to fix yourself or to be your own exterminator, or to just despair and give up and turn from the light, the light of Jesus comes just as a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon brings pain that it might heal. Jesus delights in shining his light in our life because he loves us. And the greed that he illuminates left to its final conclusion will leave you an immortal horror for all eternity if he doesn't intervene. The lust grown to its full capacity will make you so far less than human for all eternity. He shines the light because he cares. Jesus is the lamp, and Jesus illuminates and reveals. Thirdly, we're invited to hold on to Jesus and his word. Look at verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here's what he's saying, like, as you receive his word, the word of the kingdom, the illumination of the lamp, if you hold on to it, even if you have a tiny little bit, even if you just have the beginning of an understanding of who Jesus is and you're just now starting to wrestle with his word, whatever tiny bit you have, you're to hold on to tightly and the promise of God is that he does a work of multiplication and expansion. To he who has, more will be given. But to lay it down, 
to reject it, to turn away, to abandon it. He says, the little that you have, even that will be taken away. He that has not will have nothing. And this is really sobering, and it's supposed to be sobering. James chapter 1, verse 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And I think it's crazy how you and me, like, we death grip clutch transient, temporary, silly trifles with all of our might. And we hold really loosely the eternal living word of God, the presence of the kingdom in our life. We hold on to things that not only are not eternal, they're not even going to last our lifetime. Death grip it, stuff that's going to end up in landfills. Like, here's a crazy example. Um, Of course, you should do the best you can with your body. Try to be healthy. Try to take care of yourself. Be a good steward. But like, we're all slowly dying, are we not? And no amount of stressing about it, no amount of comparing yourself to people you think has a perfect body is going to keep you from the ravages of old age and from eventually being put in the ground and turning back into the dust. And yet we fret and we cling and we hold and we wrestle these things. Our careers, as if, as if we're going to be a pastor or a doctor or a business owner in 10 billion years. But then we kind of just like loosely hold on to the promises of God, the treasure of his word that's living and active, that's never going to go away, that's going to outlast the sun and the moon and the stars. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, hold on to me. Hold on to me and hold on to my word. Don't let go of what you've been given. And this then transitions into the next two parables, which are different but connected. I'll go really quickly. Jesus gives us the parable then of the seed, which is a balance to the parable of holding on to his word. Look at verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises day and night and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. The Greek word conjures the image of automatically. It produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus is talking about the agricultural miracle of germination. That even though we can know scientifically how that seed germinates and turns into a stalk of wheat, it doesn't take away the wonder that though the farmer has a role to play in planting and preparing the ground and pulling weeds and watering, the farmer has no agency over the magic that takes place inside the seed. In the seed is the inherent ability to produce and to grow. And the farmer doesn't make that happen through fretting. He can't control it. In fact, he doesn't even superintend the most important part of farming. It's out of his control. What I love about this is that when Jesus talks about holding on to what you have, it's a reminder that we have a part to play. But then when he talks about the seed growing When the farmer's in bed, he's reminding us that the sovereign God who speaks his word is the one that superintends the results 
that he promises, that he's the one that completes it. He's the one that grows it. He's the one that finishes it. That we get to trust in the fact that in this parabolic mixing of metaphors, what Jesus is saying is really encouraging. That the word of God that's been planted inside of you is like a seed and God is watching over his word that it wouldn't return to him void. He finishes the good things he starts. And even though you sometimes and I sometimes don't feel like we're growing and don't feel like we're changing and we can get frustrated and discouraged, in the midst of all of that frustration, there's something amazing and supernatural at work. The word of God and the spirit of God is working in you and in this world to accomplish his desired ends. And that means you can breathe, you can trust, you can rest. Jesus then closes this section of teaching with the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 30, and he said, what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can take nests, make nests in its shade. With many other such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I love this. That mustard seed seems so fragile. It's so tiny. And the world's so dangerous and the ground can be so hard and there's so many things that can, can, that can disrupt the process and yet Jesus is saying that tiny, fragile little seed of the kingdom, it grows and it expands and it gets to the place where it's one of the largest plants in the garden and birds can make nests in its branches. 2,000 years ago, in the dark of night, the living God slipped into human history in the birth of Jesus in a barn. His parents were peasants. He lived 30 years anonymously except for the small village that he was raised in. He only taught for three years and his teaching and healing ministry was in a politically and geographically insignificant part of the world. He didn't have mass communication. He was betrayed, tortured, humiliated, and died. Three days later, he bodily raised from the dead. He appeared to 500 people at one time. The disciples that were ready to abandon him, that were terrified, that were constantly bickering, were transformed as they saw the resurrected Jesus and were filled by the spirit of the living God, they were changed into witnesses. And that little fragile group of people that seemed so tiny compared to the opposition of the Jewish leaders and minute compared to the opposition of Rome, even as they got persecuted and it felt like that seed was so fragile and it was so fraught with danger, even in the midst of that persecution, the seed of the kingdom got spread to little places like Antioch, eventually to places like South India. And that little seed of the kingdom for 2,000 years has been growing in places that seem impossible for it to grow, places like Iran right now, places like China, 
And now, 2,000 years after the planting of that seed in the ground, Jesus in the grave, there are 2 billion people on this planet that call on the name of Jesus. And it's not a homogenous Western thing. It's not a white thing. It's a global thing. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue, every accent, every dialect, that tiny little seed of the kingdom has indeed grown and is growing. And we can be so tempted to look at the darkness of the world, the evil, the violence, the things happening that cause profound human suffering, and we can think, oh man, the kingdom's done, it's not gonna happen, but Jesus promised that that little mustard seed would accomplish its work. And on the great day when Jesus returns, here's what we know. The lion will indeed lay down with the lamb. The child will get to play by the hole of a cobra and not be harmed. Swords will be turned into plowshares, swords into pruning hooks. Like his word, his kingdom, his resurrection, his redemption has not been a shock and awe campaign. It hasn't been a light show. It hasn't been like a bolt of lightning. It's been like a seed that got planted that's been steadily growing and he's gonna superintend its growth to the desired end that he has. And he does that for you. He loves you. And he's watching the growth of the seed that's been planted in you. And of course, you have a part to play in holding on to his word, not rejecting it, not turning from it, not laying it down. But the God that planted that seed is the God that makes it grow and the God that promised that he'd finish the good things he started in you. So Father, thank you. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his work. We thank you for his compassion and his authority. We pray that in the light of Jesus, we would see ourselves rightly and see the world rightly. We thank you so much for the way that the seed of your kingdom grows without us controlling it or making it happen. We thank you that it's not through political power or wealth or influence that your kingdom expands. We thank you so much for the things that you've started even in this room we offer them back to you in gratitude and in worship and we ask that you would keep your hands 